0: Mayo Clinic presents the always on EM podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Bank Bellamconda. Welcome to the always on EM podcast. I'm really excited to be co-hosting with Dr. Alex Finch. This is Vank bellam and we have a really excellent guest today, Sarah Shettle, who's one of the physician assistants in the cardiac surgery department here at Mayo clinic. Welcome
1: Sarah. Thank you, Vank.
0: Can you tell us a little bit
1: about yourself? Sure. As Vank said, my name is Sarah Shettle and I have been working here in the LVAD space. And now this is on my 11th year here and I started out with a wholly different set of devices than we presently use here. But even when I had done my rotations, I wasn't even aware that LVAD was something that was in our compendium of offerings for patients. So it was certainly something that was new to me. It was kind of interesting because when I um, graduated from PA school, I said the the three things I didn't want to do was anything cardiology, anything oh. pulmonology, or anything with call. <laughs> and I'm in <laughs> cardiology with, with call here. And I tell people it's everything I never knew I wanted to do in in a lot of respects. And the patients are honestly just a remarkable group of people. They're resilient. Honestly, they have these mechanical pumps that support their hearts. And I think, you know, they, they are just a remarkable, a remarkable population. I've been very lucky to care for them for this long.
0: Alex, you had a chance to meet Sarah in a different context. Tell us about that.
2: I did. We were so lucky to have Sarah join us in one of our educational activities beyond ACLS. And, as a group, we were trying to decide who was going to be the content expert on LVADs in the ED. And we said, we've got to have Sarah come teach us because you know more than anyone. We were so lucky to have you there. Thank you for joining us there and today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I think. Honestly, as much as we can make that understandable, I think that's that's a very positive thing. I think it can seem scary for people. Things that are outside of our norms or outside of our knowns, I think sometimes can raise a little bit of internal anxiety when these patients walk through the door. And as, as much as we can quell that anxiety by education and awareness and knowledge, I think that really helps. So. I've loved been being able to participate in, in some of those endeavors through the ED, and we've done some things through the Sim Center to help mimic these lives. So I think those have all been really helpful, and hopefully people will feel more comfortable with LVAD as a result.
2: Absolutely. One of my colleagues who had been running the course before me gave me your name, but I, I'm actually not sure how he got your name. How did, how did you first get connected with the emergency department?
1: So I think this this harkens back to when we used to do total artificial hearts at Mayo Clinic. And at the time, and this particular gentleman was staying at an extended stay facility in Rochester and had a driver, which is essentially kind of like a computer of sorts that runs the device. It was essentially a, a glorified air compressor system. A total artificial heart essentially works by having two uh, plastic spheres that function as ventricles for a patient and those spheres are connected to tubes and inside of those spheres is a rubber diaphragm that inflates or deflates through those tubes with air pumped in and out of those tubes and those spheres are attached to two artificial valves on each sphere for a total of four valves, essentially the valves that you would have in your heart and those are then attached via some cuffs coming off of those valves to the atrial cuff. So essentially to get this device a patient's heart is entirely excised, which is a pretty dramatic thing (laughs) if you think about it. Um, But yeah, so they have, you know, residual atrial cuffs that are then sewn to um, to this device. And then you have these two tubes that exit the patient's abdomen that are connected to this driver. And this particular patient had a fault alarm on the driver, meaning that the that the controller or the device that powered his pump was failing. And in order to rectify that situation, one should switch from the failing unit to a new unit. And so the patient's um, caregiver attempted to do so, but was only able to successfully change over one of the tubes. So essentially, if you imagine there's this air compression system that has one tube that is just blowing air out of it. Nothing is happening. It's flying around everywhere and it's alarming. And the same thing is happening on the other. So the left ventricle is supported with one driver, the right ventricle is supported with the other driver. And both drivers have one ventricle that they're not supporting that there, it was alarming. And so this was the context with which the patient called and was instructed to go to the ED. (laughs) And so, um, so I, so my colleague who was actually on call, who lived uh, further outside of Rochester than I did, um, called me immediately and said, Sarah, I think you should go to the ED. They're going to probably want some help with this one. <laughs> and yes. so, yes. Um, <laughs> so I was playing tennis at the time with uh, a couple of friends, um, just less than a half a mile from St. Mary's. So I dropped my tennis racket and uh, ran to the hospital and convinced the the lady in the ED that she should let me in the back to help for when this patient landed. And then shortly thereafter, this patient came in with two blaring alarms, kind of a hysterical family member. And you know, these drivers on, on essentially the the cot. And so I had brought, I had gone up to the hospital and brought down an extra driver and was able to swap the patient over to a fully functioning driver. And the thing with that is you want to switch it over very quickly, because if you leave the one that is functional off, you basically then are cutting off the left ventricle or the right oh, ventricle, boy. depending on which one you're, you're swapping over. Um, so, yeah, so it was, I mean, it was quite the adventure in the ED there. And then after you know, I swapped it over, then all the alarms stopped and there was just like a palpable quiet <laughs> um, in the ED. And I think, you know, thankfully everything, everything worked out great for the patient. And then 10 minutes later, the surgeon came in and 10 minutes later, the tech came in. And like, eventually by the time, you know, there was probably a full group of maybe 20 people in the ED. And then yeah. at that point, everyone wanted to learn about the total artificial heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then ever since then, I think I've been invited to do education for the ED from TAH to all that to a variety of other things. So
0: I'm glad we let you in the door. It sounds like that was probably an interesting conversation being that you wearing your tennis uniform and showing yes. up without identification, but it's been awesome for us for sure.
1: Yeah, it's been,
2: it's been quite the journey. <laughs> well, you're welcome in the emergency department anytime. <laughs> you just walk right in. What's your I, rule again, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> my rule my rule is if an LVAD coordinator shows up and wants to come in, they come back immediately. No questions <laughs> asked.
1: And especially if they bring the equipment, I imagine, with them right then. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've each had interesting experiences. I have to be honest, the first time I remember really thinking about LVAD catastrophes, I was watching television And I'm not a big Grey's Anatomy fan, but I happened to be watching when they had this series where one of the residents on the show falls in love with a patient and the patient's battling virtually, I guess, with another person to receive a heart transplant and to try and move them up on the list. The resident cuts the wires. I could not imagine. The storyline was captivating, obviously. Do you watch Mm -hmm. Grey's Anatomy? And how did you, have you heard about this situation?
1: Well, um, I am not admittedly a a watcher of Grey's Anatomy, but I am aware of this episode because it is uh, frequently one of the ways by which patients have heard of LVADs. So um, sometimes people will come to see me in clinic and they will say, well, you know, I saw that Grey's Anatomy episode, or I saw that Chicago Med episode about LVAD, and that's kind of their only awareness or exposure to the therapy. None of them want their lines cut necessarily if they get one, but, (laughs) but at least they have some sort of a sense in that it, you know, supports cardiac function and- and that you can use it as a way of potentially getting to a transplant. So I think that it it does serve a purpose in that I think that as soon as something makes its way into popular culture, I think it helps to normalize it on yeah. maybe a level that otherwise doesn't exist. And I think that for a lot of patients, I think that can be a very abnormal experience because things like pacemakers now are fully internalized, right? So you have something that you can wear a t-shirt over and maybe, you know, nobody might even be aware that you have this. With an LVAD, there still are peripherals. So you still have a cord that's tunneled through the body and exits the patient's abdomen. And then that cord that's external is connected to a controller, which is connected to two external batteries. So the patient is carrying anywhere from four or five pounds of, of peripheral equipment. And for some of them, that can, that can be a bit disconcerting because I think they, they went from what was maybe a previously, you know, normal exterior to now having to figure out how do they maneuver or carry around batteries and a controller. And then how do you do that with clothing? And, and especially for some of my female patients, I think, you know, there are some body image challenges that, that come along with that. in some of our younger patients or imagine a patient who wants to get married, where do you put a driveline and a controller and batteries in a wedding dress? You know, I mean, these are all sorts of interesting challenges that, that bad patients face. Another one is just even How do you shower with a device right i mean you wouldn't blow dry your hair or maybe you don't blow dry your hair but (laughs) those days are long gone (laughs) (laughs) if i if i blow dry my hair you know i'm not going to do that in the shower where there's where there's water um and so for these patients they have to have a special waterproof bag that they put their equipment in. They have to cover the site with a piece of saran wrap or press and seal, no joke, um, or wow. some sort of like a plastic, um, essentially water impervious layer. So that way they can shower successfully, but there's all these different adaptations or, or things that they have to, to do in a new way to adopt to a new normal with LVAD. So I think maybe seeing something on popular culture, at least is one step closer to normalize that. And I'm hopeful uh, some of the um, companies out there presently are working on fully implantable systems. So we may not even have um, these peripherals, hopefully if we have a rediscussion of this in five or 10 years here. So (laughs) we'll see, It it is honestly a very exciting field to be a part of because it's so dynamic and the devices that I work with now are not the devices that I worked with when I started. The devices have gotten smaller, more durable, lower adverse event profile. So it's been really exciting to see the field evolve and the care evolve over time.
2: Sarah, in speaking with you, so many things shine through your passion for this patient population Mm -hmm. and these devices and an incredible knowledge base that I just don't have. And so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning all these nuances, things down to showering. And what I'm hearing is there's a lot of ways for this to go wrong that somebody would show up in the emergency department mm-hmm. uh, that I, I have to sort through. To, to really bring it back to the basics and make sure we're all speaking the same language, we've been using the term LVAD. What exactly uh, is an LVAD device? And who, who is a patient that's going to get this device?
1: Sure. So LVAD stands for left ventricular assist device. Um, I usually point out to people that it's an assist device, not a replacement device. So it is aiding your heart. So if you have an ICD, you still keep your ICD, you know, it's not, it's not going to, you know, do anything other than remove blood and deliver it um, or essentially attempt to restore a, a normalized cardiac output for a patient. So the advantages of that are then to help with end organ perfusion, you know, exercise capacity, all of those sorts of things. So in order for a patient to qualify for this, they have to be pretty sick. The New York Heart Association is, is one way by which you can determine the severity of heart failure and they have stages one through four. So to qualify patients have to be stage four, which is the most advanced stage of heart failure. Uh, patients also have to meet certain criteria, usually by echo, for ejection fraction. So, their ejection fraction has to be less than 25%, which is really quite reduced. Other criteria that patients may need to meet in order to qualify for something like this could be a really reduced cardiac index, for instance, less than 2.2, or to be dependent on inotropes or a balloon pump. So, all of those are, are pieces that would uh, potentially qualify a patient for an LVAD. People sometimes wonder if age matters. Like, could you be too old to get an LVAD or too young to get an LVAD? And um, we really have patients that span the continuum of ages. We've had some children that have received LVADs all the way to patients in their 80s. So it really is a therapy that can help people, you know, regardless of age, and it can be used in, in a variety of ways. So the two most common reasons for which an LVAD would be implanted would either be something called DT or destination therapy or something called BTT or bridge to transplant. So destination therapy is for patients that will have this device for the duration of their life. So suppose somebody is a 76 year old, you know, individual who wants to spend more time with their grandkids and and get back to some sort of, you know, normalcy of of life and and functionality, they're unlikely to be a candidate for transplant given their age. So maybe they would be supported with a device as destination therapy. Maybe on the other hand, you have perhaps a patient who had postpartum cardiomyopathy, is a younger female without maybe other significant comorbid conditions who might benefit from the device as a temporizing measure until a heart becomes available. So she could get an LVAD as bridge to transplant potentially. And so there's an organizing body called UNOS that determines organ allocation. So patients that have an LVAD are are typically status four in UNOS. And then if they have a complication with LVAD, that could increase their status to potentially get them done even sooner um, if the need were to arise for that. So those are kind of the ways In which we use them and the criteria by which patients may may qualify.
2: That's incredibly helpful. And so a patient is coming in, they have a Mm -hmm. device. The goal of that device is essentially to increase their cardiac output because the problem is they have the worst heart failure, uh, the most Mm -hmm. severe. And that device is taking blood from the left ventricle and pushing it up to the aorta with a uh, a pump and a battery, and you're already touching on one thing that uh, I'm probably not even thinking about in the resuscitation bay, which is asking the patient, "Why do you have this? Or mm-hmm. is this device here to make you more comfortable, or are you high on a list for a transplant? And we're we're just trying to we're trying to get you to that transplant, which mm-hmm. are, seems to be very very different pathways for me as an emergency physician." Right.
1: Right. Well, certainly. And I think you touch on a a good point there with regard to transplant and if they show up in the ED. And I suppose we could spend maybe a bit of time just talking about what are maybe some of the common reasons by which someone could come um, to the ED. But one thing um, could be bleeding, for instance. So patients that are supported with an LVAD have a device that is spinning at thousands of revolutions per minute. On top of that, many of them will have acquired von Willebrand disease because of the way the pump will chew up. Um, those factors, and furthermore, we support these patients with warfarin, typically targeting an ion or goal of two to three, and aspirin. So there are a lot of reasons by which they could bleed, and then on top of that, LVAD is essentially a continuous flow device. So you take away this native pulsatility in those blood vessels, and by removing that pulsatility, you then allow for a more easy formation of arteriovenous malformations or AVMs, which are more friable vessels that can break and cause some of these bleeds that are that can be common in LVAD patients. And so bleeding can be a complication that we see, you know, it could be a bleed in the, in the small intestine or in the colon. Um, and so sometimes scoping is necessary, but sometimes people need transfusions then, right? If they have a bleed and if we're thinking about maybe a destination therapy patient or a to transplant patient, sometimes it's helpful to know that sort of information, because if you're sort of on the fence as to whether you should or shouldn't transfuse, it may be worth ensuring, you know, that, you know, that the, reason for which the patient got the device, because if you over transfuse them and you increase their sensitization against a future donor organ that could limit their availability for maybe a heart transplant in the future, if maybe we could have given them some albumin or, you know, so those are all things that, that we think about, you know, like how can we best utilize the resources that we have? And really, I think one of the, the things that we're very lucky at at Mayo is that we can do this sort of individualized medicine for patients and say, what can we do for this patient that would help them that would be different than how he would help somebody else. So, I mean, that's just an example in bleeding. Now on the opposite side of of things, you know, we could see clotting, right? Um, But maybe I should pause there and see if that brings up any questions before I tell you about other complications.
0: The AVMs, are you seeing them in a particular area?
1: I think that unfortunately, the most common location for AVMs tends to be in the small bowel. And so usually these patients will end up coming into the hospital and then they'll get prepped and they'll need an EGD and a colonoscopy. And those both, you know, can reach so far and then there's this whole stretch of, you know, small intestine that then requires either like a, a double balloon endoscopy or, you know, a capsule study or, or all these additional interventions. Meanwhile, these patients then have been, you know, fasting and drinking prep and they're probably already frail, you know, and, yeah. and maybe they had a super therapeutic INR in the context of causing the bleed. And so um, sometimes these sorts of bleeds resolve without us actually identifying the right. AVM we presume that it probably was an AVM, but a lot of times it's small bowel and then actually finding it there is, is its own challenge. So I am forever grateful. Just like, I guess yeah. you're grateful for all that. I'm grateful for GI <laughs> and yeah. ID and all of these other services that are really of tremendous help um, right. to us and our patients. And so, so yeah, it definitely, you know, it, it, I, I think small bowel is probably the most common location that, that I've seen when we find them. <laughs>
0: Got it. And so just, just to summarize, you were talking about these patients being at high risk for bleeding for several reasons. And I want to make sure I captured it. Well, Mm -hmm. many of them have an acquired Von Willebrand's syndrome. There's a traumatic, like a micro trauma that occurs from the rotational device. That's chewing Mm -hmm. up factors. Mm -hmm. There's they're on anticoagulants with a goal INR of two to three. Did I capture those those reasons? Yes.
1: Yeah. Those are all great reasons. Yeah. And I think just that alteration of flow, you know, that you have continuous flow instead of that pulsatility.
0: Ah, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reflecting back on what you're saying because,, yeah, I was working overnight and it was about two thirty in the morning, and then a patient with an LVAD was in a car accident and had a head bleed with mm. mid midline shift. And I remember that the cardiac surgery consultant, anesthesia consultant, trauma, like all of us were sitting there trying to figure out, do we reverse this patient or do we not? And if we do, is there a middle ground? What do we do? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it was an extremely stressful moment for me, but I was also struck by the amazing teamwork that Mm -hmm. neurosurgery, trauma, your teams, our teams, anesthesia, we're all at 2.30 in the morning, having a frank, honest, kind, and respectful discussion. It was amazing Mm -hmm. and very impactful for me. And you get to be a part of that all the time. Mm-hmm. What are your reflections hearing that? What are your experiences? Things
1: yeah. Like well, I mean, I think that you just highlight one of the really things that makes Mayo wonderful is, is just that, that teamwork or that multidisciplinary approach to care. Honestly, I work with just the most amazing cardiologists and surgeons here. And I think that we all know what we know because there have been people in our lives that has taught us these things or have guided us to resources or have helped shape our education. And I think that I didn't come into this role knowing anything about LVAD, but I had a lot of really talented people that taught me a lot of information guided me towards resources, helped me get connected with different industry partners for training sessions. And so, so I feel very grateful. I mean, it's one of those things where you feel like you get to stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, we have so many experts in all of these different areas at Mayo. I mean, we have world experts at literally everything here. And we're so fortunate to have that all under one roof and that you can call them and bring somebody in and, or multiple team members in for a patient. And I think that some of these discussions, you know, like you alluded to, are challenging, you know. If it, if there was a clear, straightforward, this is one hundred percent the the answer, there wouldn't be a need for those tough discussions, right? And so, weighing individual circumstances to determine what is right for that patient or what should you do, I think having the the ability to collaborate with team members is really, really helpful in those contexts.
0: Right before I interrupted you, sorry, you were going to mention clotting as the one sure. of the other other big yes. reasons.
1: Well, I mean, and then, I mean, I think to your point, how you were saying this patient ended up having a car accident with midline shift, sometimes you can end up having an embolic stroke that then transforms into hemorrhagic, right? And you can end up in a similar sort of a situation, but I guess clotting is something that is on the opposite end of the spectrum of bleeding. So clotting could be anything from like an embolic stroke, or it could be a clot within the device itself. Neither of which are are things that are, that are good, you know, or you get a PE. I mean, all of these things, I always tell my patients, I'd rather you have 10 nosebleeds than than one pump clot or or one embolic stroke. So we tend to keep patients on anticoagulation just because usually the risks of bleeding are are less concerning than some of those risks of clotting. But that is certainly one of them, while it is certainly less common um, when it happens, it's one of those more catastrophic types of things where you really have to be able to intervene quickly. We just had a patient who came into the hospital this last week with device thrombosis and ended up having... Powers on her device that exceeded twenty watts, and for those of you who maybe don't know for Elved, maybe you would see powers in the three, five, seven range, maybe not twenty. You know, and so the the degree of of thrombosis that the patient was experiencing was was pretty profound. And it's so nice to be able to have an environment like this where you can bring them in and have the resources of pharmacy, surgical teams, all of these other things so you can offer the patient the the best possible chance for a good outcome.
2: In the acute setting, Mm -hmm. as an emergency doctor, how am I going to work through that that kind of issue?
1: You're probably going to call me and I'm going to admit the patient right away. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine. Um, God bless you. But typically, yeah, well, typically, I mean... As, as much as we can in these sorts of contexts, we get also all of our patients have an emergency number that they can reach out to us 24 hours a day. So, our hope is that if or when there's something like this that's going on, that we're aware, and then we can call in advance and, and offer some resources and guidance um, to the ED. So, I frequently have tried when I'm on call, if I know somebody's going to be coming in with a certain issue, I may preemptively call and say, You should order this, this, and this, do this thing. I'll meet you down there when they come and interrogate the device. And then at least there can be a plan in place for when the patient arrives and things can flow more smoothly. Um, But I think that being aware of those uh, resources and how to get a hold of people is is necessary then in those contexts.
0: And you mentioned power just a minute ago. Mm -hmm. I'm a complete novice to this. And so am I thinking of it right that the machine having a high power reading means it's pushing against some kind of resistance and that's mm-hmm. where the clot is, is that?
1: Yes, so if if we think about, there's um, different parameters on the LVAD. So speed um, is one of them, how fast the pump is running. And that is a fixed parameter. We can adjust that and turn it up or turn it down, but that's something that's relatively fixed. Then there is power, which is how much is being pulled from either battery power or wall power to run the device. This is measured in watts. And then there is flow, which is how much blood is going across the device. So you could think of it as maybe a rough estimation of cardiac output because they may have some element of native heart contribution, but it can give you a a sense of what they might be experiencing from a cardiac output perspective. Now that is a calculated variable, so it's not independent. So it depends on power and speed. So if your power is off for some reason, it could give you a falsely elevated flow, for instance. Um, so for instance, in the patient whose powers were 20, her flow was probably greater than 12 liters per minute. But realistically, physiologically, that wouldn't be possible. It was because of the calculation spinning out that as a flow. And then um, the heartmate devices have this variable called PI or pulsatility index. So we think about our, our heart as an organ that pulses or squeezes. If the pulsatility index is higher, it means that the the native heart is working harder, contributing more. Um, And if it's lower, you can think about the native heart as maybe contributing a little less in that context. And so those are the different parameters by which the device gives you information. So to your question about power, it truly is a measure of how much battery power or wall power is needed to deliver that flow. So other things like the amount of volume the patient has or the blood pressure that they are pumping that volume against or a clot, any of those things can alter power. So if we think from a hemodynamic perspective, if you're transfusing a patient or they lost a bunch of blood, that's gonna alter that volume. If they're hypertensive versus hypotensive, that is going to alter these readings. So all of these things are in a dynamic interplay in real time that you get to see play out. So I think it's, it's interesting. It kind of gives you a, a, a glimpse into what their internal dynamics may be.
2: You're talking about some incredible parameters. The way my encounters with an LVAD patient will often start is a new patient pops up on my board and it's a complaint that doesn't seem like it's a big problem, something like weakness. And all of a sudden somebody comes to get me and says, we need you in this room. It's an LVAD patient. And already my anxiety is starting to go up. This is something I'm not very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I walk into the room and the things that I consider are going to be a given for me, are challenging. Mm-hmm. And to walk through some of those issues, somebody looks at me and says, I don't feel a good pulse and the blood pressure monitor isn't reading. And already I'm in the weeds because you know I just want to start a liter of fluid and and I and already I'm kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. When when I'm walking into that room and somebody's struggling to get a pulse, should I expect that my LVAD patient is going to have a pulse?
1: Um, so that's, that's a great question. And if you think about the the pulse pressure, the difference between your systolic and diastolic for VAD patients is often quite narrow. And in the context of continuous flow, and if the majority of the flow is going through the device with minimal native contribution, then the continuous flow will prevent you from feeling a palpable pulse. Depending on the amount of native heart contribution that the patient has, you may feel something very weak, but it would be it would be more unusual for you to feel a pulse than for you to not feel a pulse. So that is something I think that is worth noting because I think you see this patient who's sitting there talking to you who's pulseless, that that can make people feel a bit, you know, a bit nervous just from the get-go. And then they have this cord coming out of their belly and maybe alarms or things. And I think that can be that can be challenging too, for sure. It So maybe like just some things just for points of reassurance, like what are things that you can think about when you come in to kind of ground yourself before you, you, you jump to that leader fluid? Cause you want to also make sure they don't have right heart failure, you know, or else yes. you're going to worsen something if you just tank them up with a bunch of fluid is to think about which device they have. So I mentioned some of the parameters, those four different parameters for the heartmate devices. So currently in the country, you could see patients that potentially have a heartmate two or a heartmate three device. So HeartMe 2 is an axial flow pump. It has an impeller that's balanced between two synthetic ruby bearings. And it was a device that was initially approved as bridge to transplant in 2008 and as destination therapy later in 2010. So it has been around for many, many years. And so there's a lot of patients that will have this device. However, this device is not currently being electively implanted into patients. So you're going to see people that have had this device, but likely not that they got this device last year, for instance. The next device that came on the market that is still something you might see across the country would be the heartware device. So this was made by Medtronic. And this device had been used up until June of this last year when it was um, pulled from the market due to inferior results compared to the HeartMate 3 device. So you could see patients with a heartware device That device has slightly different parameters that i'll tell you about in just a moment and then the last device the newest one on the market is the heartmate 3 device and that is currently the only the device that is fda approved for use as bridge to transplant or destination therapy across the us so it is the only device that's being used for durable lvet support across the country so if you have a new patient that's likely the device that they're going to have but there are plenty of other devices that are still in use that are being supported so it's, you can't just learn only one and say this is all that I need to know. There truly are other ones out there, and eventually those will probably transition out and be, you know, patients may get transplanted or you know, um, you know, live out the duration of their life. And eventually, maybe we'll just see HeartMate threes or whatever the next pump is after HeartMate three. Um, let me tell you a bit about heartware and then I'll tell you reassuring things in the in the ED. So, so hardware um, instead of having those four parameters, it has speed flow and power, but then it has a waveform. So it kind of looks like your sine or cosine waves are almost like your you know, arterial waveforms, maybe in, in, if you're in the ICU setting. Um, so it does not have PI, and instead has these waveforms that require a little bit of time to be able to probably interpret well. Um, so just be aware that one is not going to have PI. So things that are consistent across all the devices, because right now you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, now I have to know three different devices, and I was already overwhelmed that they walk in. And now that I know that there's different options, like this makes it even more overwhelming. So like <laughs> like what I hear is that my, mind.
2: Yep. my <laughs> patient doesn't have a pulse. And now I, uh, I'm confused about the, which device it is.
1: Mm-hmm. How, how
2: am I, what is my, what are my common variables that I can work? Yes,
1: through? yes, absolutely. So if you have a a, dev- a device, the heartmate device, and if you look at it, there should be green arrows in a circle chasing each other on the controller. And I always tell people that is a very useful thing to look for because if you see those arrows illuminated, it means that power is getting from the pump to the patient and through the controller and that is working correctly. So as long as that is illuminated, even if there are alarms occurring, even if there's something else going on, the pump is working. And so that gives you some peace to be able to say, okay, I can work through whatever is going on. The pump is functional.
2: Green is Um, good.
1: Green is good. Yes. The other thing I think of is if you think about these like a traffic light system, green, yellow, and red, anything that you see that's green is usually giving you some sort of diagnostic information about the device. So green is gonna tell you things like how much battery life do I have left or information that isn't something that you need to immediately act upon, but that might be helpful for you to know in your care of the patient. By the, when you get a yellow alarm it's more of a, a, a suggestion for you to pause that you should think about you know there's something that should be done not emergent but something that should be considered to be intervening upon. And then the last one is a red alarm so red is where you want to stop and do something sooner rather than later in that context. The other thing is
2: Sarah shuttles about to run through the door means
1: call my pager, right? (laughs) (laughs) the, The good, the good thing also is that these controllers have a screen on them. Thankfully, this is a new thing. Like when I first started in this role, you had to know a series of beeps and lights to know what the alarm was and what to do. There was nothing that would tell you in the ED what any alarm or beeping meant. Now they've upgraded these to these like little LCD screens that are on there that say what the alarm means and what you should do. So it'll say, you know, change the battery or whatever the, the, the intervention is that needs to be done. So it gives you a lot more information than, than used to exist in the past. Um, and, then, and then finally, there's only two buttons on the hardware device or three buttons on the HeartMate devices. And I always tell people, providers, patients, no matter what button you push or combination of buttons, you cannot turn up the speed, turn down the speed, turn off the pump or do anything harmful to the patient. And there's only two or three buttons. So eventually you're gonna push the right button. You may get some additional (laughs) information that you didn't know, or you may test the lights and the alarms, or you may find that you silenced the alarm instead of understanding what the alarm meant. But there are only a few options and the patients are unlikely to know what it is that you're attempting to do for them anyway. So as long as you just pretend like you intended to test the alarms. Then just move on to the next button and it would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: I love it. Start pushing buttons. Take That's... it until you make it.
1: <laughs> yes, because those buttons will also tell you the parameters. Wonderful. And if you call me and tell me parameters plus alarms, I'm gonna be able to be even more helpful for you.
2: <laughs> All right. So what I'm what I'm hearing is there's a lot of noises coming at me. I've walked in the room, my patient doesn't have a pulse, but they're talking to me. So I I'm Sarah's told me I should immediately start CPR. This is, this is something to be expected. I've now looked at the device and I've gotten the name of the device so that when I talk with you, I can have a better discussion. And I know that if I start pushing the buttons, I'm not gonna immediately kill the patient because that would definitely be my fear. I would say, don't <laughs> touch that thing, do not touch it my attempt at that point is to reasonably try and get some parameters if things are, are green versus I know something's really wrong if it's yellow or red. Is that yeah. is that right?
1: I think that's entirely fair. And I think maybe one thing that we forget is that patients frequently present to the ED for something that is nothing to do with their LVAD. The LVAD is just a peripheral thing. And Absolutely. we so often see the LVAD and assume that it must be the LVAD or we must have to do something with the LVAD and the patient could have pneumonia or gout or any one of a number of other things that are problematic, and the LVAD just happens to be there supporting their heart, you know. And and if you didn't know that it was there, you would know what to do for management. But then as soon as you see the LVAD, you think, oh my gosh, now I don't know how to treat the patient. But the treatment is still the same. It's just that the VAD adds a, adds another layer to it if it's something cardiac related.
2: What about blood pressure? This comes up frequently mm-hmm. for for me the patient doesn't have a pulse and now we can't get a blood pressure. They seem to be talking to me. How, how do we, how do we work through that
1: issue? Sure. Blood pressure. You're right. Is one of those things that also strikes fear in the heart of people. And frequently it's related to that narrow pulse pressure and the lack of pulsatility. And so if your patient has a wide enough pulse pressure, you may be able to successfully get a cuff pressure but it is very likely that you will not. And so, you know, you, you put that automatic cuff on, you attempt to go, it, and it's error twice. And you think, now what do I do? So in this case, you're going to want to get a Doppler, and that will amplify the sounds that you can hear. So you're going to want to pick whatever is your favorite spot, either the wrist or the elbow, and you're going to use that Doppler and and, and find essentially something that's going to sound like a whooshing sound. So you'll hear like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Whenever you find that sound, you mark that spot either with like a Sharpie or your eyeball so you know where that is. And you hold the Doppler over there and then you're going to inflate your cuff. And where you hear that sound disappear, I would then inflate the cuff maybe 20 millimeters of mercury beyond that point and then slowly deflate the cuff and see where that sound reappears. And hopefully it reappears right around the same point where it disappeared. And hopefully ideally that's somewhere between 70 and 85 millimeters of mercury because that is the goal for the vast majority of our patients. In some patients, Alarms can be triggered if they're hypertensive, for instance, or if they become hypotensive. And so having a blood pressure can be helpful, but in a patient who's hypotensive, who has a narrow pulse pressure, you're probably definitely not going to get a cuff pressure there. So you're probably going to have to rely on Doppler in that context. So it can be very helpful to do that. And, and most of the patients have had Doppler pressures before, since this is not their first rodeo with getting a blood pressure check. So they may even be able to tell you where the best spot is that you can mm-hmm. hear that because um, they've had it probably done a hundred times.
2: All right. So I've walked in and all the things that normally are easy for me are hard, but I've stumbled through because you've taught me. So the patient doesn't have a pulse, but I've uh, reassured the room, but mostly myself that things are okay. We've eventually gotten a map and that's reasonably okay, but the device is making a lot of noise and you've already touched on a couple of things. So there's maybe the power is really high, what what kinds of things are going to alarm that I'm going to have mm-hmm. to act on right away? You talked about those red alarms. I'm yeah. thinking about things like the patient comes in and the battery's dying. Do I mm-hmm. plug them into the wall? What are the things that I've got to act on right away? Sure.
1: Yes. So you're absolutely right in that the red alarms are the ones that are the immediately actionable items. So the thing to know for the battery alarms is that they don't, it doesn't just start with a red alarm. The patient will start with an alarm that will be an intermittent beeping to tell them they have 15 minutes left. And they would have to continuously silence that for 15 minutes every time it you know occurs to move on to the next level of alarm, which would be you now have five minutes left on, on your device. So once it moves to five minutes, then it's gonna to switch to a red alarm to say, hey, you didn't listen to me when I told you you had 15 minutes. Now, if you have a HeartMate device, there's an internal battery inside of the controller. So even if the patient ignores that five minute alarm and they lose all external power, there's an internal battery inside of the heartmate devices that will power the patient for another 15 minutes. And now you will get a device saying you have no power. You are functioning on your internal battery on the controller. You must change now. So, but if you first hear that red alarm, you still have time to call me probably because you've got Five minutes or 15 minutes, you know. I mean, likely if it's a red alarm, you, you probably weren't letting it go in the ED for 15 minutes, and then you thought, well, now is finally the time I should call. So that's something you should intervene upon. But I mean, you have a little bit of time because there's multiple iterations of that alarm. So, so that's one. And the solution is simple just put a new battery. The patient should have batteries with them. We have batteries in the hospital, so we can give you batteries, or they can just exchange them. But you know, we had a patient, for instance, at home who was watching a football game and he didn't want to get up and get his batteries. Cause I guess it went into overtime. And so, but then it was like one of those where it goes into like three different overtimes, right? So he kept silencing the alarm and then eventually he lost power altogether. And then his wife heard the alarm and came running in and he was, so she plopped in new batteries, but I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we don't, we don't want it to go that far. <laughs> you wow. should definitely change them sooner. Other serious alarms you could have would be if there was some sort of damage to the drive line, for instance. So if it's, if you cut through the drive line, that would be an alarm that would say that the drive line is disconnected. Or if you damage the wires in the drive line, it would say that the driveline you know isn't supporting the patient. Now the hard thing is is you can change out all the controllers that you want, but that's not going to fix the issue, which is that the drive line that plugs into the controller is the problem. So in those sorts of situations, you have to think really quickly on your feet to come up with a solution or likely admit the patient to the hospital, you know for an exchange or a splicing of the line. And I think you guys heard a story about that.
2: There's a legend. <laughs> uh, that was published about a patient who accidentally severed their drive line, and a very, a very creative emergency physician who worked hard to uh, try and splice some wires and get it going. I hope I, I never find myself in that situation, or if I do, that you're running through the doors and you're going to get this patient hooked <laughs> back up for me.
1: Yeah, we and we do that splicing just typically in the inpatient setting um, <laughs> for patients that do have da- so if their entire line isn't severed but it's maybe one or two wires we'll actually splice them over to an entirely new drive line and do that sort of procedure so they get a new extension essentially to their drive line so it it is done we just typically prefer not to do it in the ED setting if possible but if you cut through all the cords then you know <laughs> or all the wires then you're in an entirely different sort of situation.
0: You would also um, talk just like you do as well. <laughs>
2: I'm sure it also talked about these different variables. If I start to see, uh, I'm trying to think about how I'm going to approach a patient in extremis and work through some of this. So mm-hmm. power is the main thing. It looks like that is going to be kind of really changing. So if I, if I see that there's a big problem in the power indicator and the patient seems to be confused or altered, what kinds of things are on my differential at that point that I can try to intervene upon?
1: Sure. Well, I'm going to say one more thing um, before that too, because the speed is supposed to be fixed, but there is a low speed setting that is built into the device. Uh. So if the speed is supposed to be, let's say 5,000 RPMs, and you're seeing the patient frequently drop down to 4,700 RPMs. And you think, why is there this oscillation between there? What can happen is if the inflow cannula or the tube that's inside of the left ventricle gets too close to the ventricular septum or to the lateral wall, it could attach or suck onto the wall and create what's called a suction event. And so if that were to happen, then the pump intentionally is designed to drop down the speed to allow the cannula to fall off of the wall and to continue to resume Delivering normal flow. But if this is continuing to happen, this may suggest that there might be some underfilling in the LV. Maybe the patient had a bleed. Maybe there's some sort of other thing going on. Maybe they've had tamponade. I don't know. You know, there could be something more serious going on in those contexts. So, though that could be something besides just power that would be worth noting.
0: We do a lot of heart ultrasound. Is that something mm-hmm. that we could see if we put yes. an ultrasound yep. transducer on? Yes, would get that, an echo uh,
1: in that context. Mm-hmm. And, and so you could, could probably see it by the... ultrasound
0: the lv muscle falling over the inflow mm-hmm. of the device
1: yeah it's a really interesting image um, if or when you see that um they okay. usually do a lot of those for kind of like the, the case reports at grand rounds and things like that because they are really compelling images when you see them so that's something to be aware of but certainly if you're seeing high powers like like you were mentioning you know you can be thinking about any one of a number of things but usually like a probably a high volume sort of situation so maybe you know your patient is maybe hypertensive, they are significantly fluid overloaded, maybe you are dealing with LVAD thrombosis, but not all of those things are serious. You know, I mean, if the patient's powers are a little bit higher because their pump is having to work harder to deliver extra volume and you can diurese them, you know, that's entirely different than if the patient has, you know, forgotten to take their warfarin for a week, their INR is 1.2 and they have a clot in their pump. You know, those are, those are very different scenarios. All right, which is why so, you get to call me then. And I can kind of work through what are the different options to rule out which of those things you're dealing with. Cause there's a whole, a whole variety of, of different lab tests and imaging studies and things we can do once we have like a idea of what might be going on to rule out one thing versus the next.
0: Well, as you're mentioning that, are there <clears throat> certain labs and imaging studies that we should consider fairly routine when taking care of an LVAD patient for a potentially LVAD related complication?
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, ECHOs are one of the most valuable tools that I use They can give you a sense of, you know, how their, how their right heart is doing, how they're doing from a volume perspective. Is that IVC dilated? Is there reduced collapse? You know, are they having worsened valve regurgitation? Has that improved? You know, how, how are things looking from that perspective? So I find that to be very helpful. And there's, you know, a general set of, of LVAD labs that I routinely order when I see patients in clinics. So I typically grab like a CBC, an INR, a CMP, an LDH. Those are, those are ones magnesium that we, that I would probably routinely grab in clinic. So when I see these patients and follow them, I'm usually getting a chest X-ray. I'm grabbing an echo and I'm getting a full set of labs and then I'm interrogating their device. And then everything else is kind of bonus after that. If I had anything else on, maybe if they have a history of arrhythmias, we're getting an ICD interrogation or ECGs. Maybe they have some sort of, you know, underlying infectious issue. Maybe we're getting PET scans or things like that, but just like the basic stuff, I would say, those are the things I get.
0: Can you help, help me understand how you use the LDH
1: Yes. So um, LDH or lactate dehydrogenase is extraordinarily helpful if we're worried about LVAD hemolysis or thrombosis. So textbook definition for hemolysis or thrombosis would be two and a half or three times the patient's baseline. So if a patient typically has an LDH of of 300 and their LDH is 900, that would be LVAD thrombosis or hemolysis until proven otherwise. Um, Now, it could be something other than that. I've had patients that have, you know, fallen and developed a massive bruise and then the byproducts of that bruising have resulted in an elevated LDH, but more often than not, that ends up being kind of an early marker to let us know that the patient may be hemolyzing. And those are typically reasons for which you would bring patients into the hospital and consider things like heparin infusions, ban those types of things um, to see if we can help medically mitigate that sort of an event. Otherwise, in some cases, you have to do an, a pump exchange or elevate the patient's um, status for listing for transplant in hopes that you can get a heart.
2: So I'm, uh, I've gotten... I've still got my patient. He's pulseless. I've thrown in the orders that you've given me. I've called you early. I've looked at the device. And what I'm understanding is I've considered a suction event and that's where essentially my speed is going to be oscillating a little bit. Will the power be constant or is the power going to change in that too? It's going to change in that as well. Okay. So if the power- But you may not
1: see it the, you know, in the moment to moment.
2: Yes. Okay. Because it's, it's dynamic. There. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to throw a probe on the heart, take a look for things like tamponade, see if the septum is bowing. If the speed is changing, I'm considering suction. If the power's high, I'm considering benign causes like hypertension or, or volume overload mm-hmm. or something really bad like uh, in-device clot versus with my LDH hemolysis. This is incredibly helpful. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for And and we're only, we're only like two minutes into the case.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I think that's always worth having on the differential is just, you know, maybe grabbing an ICD interrogation just in case, because if they're presenting to the ED, it could be that they went into some sort of an arrhythmia and you have to remember with an LVAD patients aren't maybe going to present in the same way that they would um, if they didn't have an LVAD. So you or I would not be walking around, you know, chatting in VT, but an LVAD patient might. Because remember, their their device is off floating their heart. So whether their heart is in VT or sinus rhythm, it's still going to deliver flow. And so you can have a patient who feels fine or maybe just feels a little off or feels like maybe they got a cold or something, and maybe their VT is just under the rate of the settings of their device. So it can be that patients may have an arrhythmia that might need to be addressed as well. It can make them feel unwell and kind of do that generalized malaise thing where you're like, "Mm, what's going on with this patient?
2: I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one of the most uncanny all stories I've ever had mm-hmm. as an emergency doc. You just get ECGs across your desk all day from triage sort of like, is there a problem? And I remember getting one and they were saying, uh, the chief complaint was weakness and I saw VF and I thought, yeah, I think there is a problem here. <laughs> I think that they don't have a pulse. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit more about this mm-hmm. story. How, how would you navigate something like that? So they, you know, a patient comes in in a lethal rhythm, but they Mm -hmm. have the LVAD, they're talking to you. Can you defibrillate these patients without breaking the LVAD? What do we do? Yes.
1: You can absolutely do all of your normal things that you would do for a non LVAD patient. Um, if you have the time, you may want to give them something so that way they're not so upset with you when you (laughs) defibrillate them, but, but certainly you can do that. and, And our patients, you know, do get that, um, if they were to present in something like, like a VF for sure.
2: Okay. So consider sedation for patient satisfaction, but, uh, but otherwise, but yes, they can
1: get the shock. All right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I... that people often wonder about is, is the CPR bit, you know, because we've had patients out in the community where they're like, patient doesn't have a pulse patient doesn't have blood pressure. I should jump to CPR, but the patient seems to be breathing. That can be a confusing thing. I tell people that really CPR should only be considered if there's something that is not functioning from a cardiac perspective. So if the LVAD is working and it's there's no issue with it, that's going to support the patient's heart. So you don't need to do chest compressions to help the LVAD pump better. The LVAD is still going to pump the heart just fine. However, if the patient is like the scenario that you mentioned where the driveline was severed, well, then your chest compressions may be the only cardiac output that they're getting. So in those situations, you're going to want to do that. Now, if there's an easily correctable thing, like the patient I described whose batteries ran out, you don't want to jump to chest compressions. You want to change the batteries. So as much as we can kind of think through the logicality of some of this stuff to say, okay, what would be the the easiest thing that I could do that would fix that? Obviously you're going to want to do that. But if it's something that isn't easily correctable, then chest compressions could be perfectly appropriate in this patient population. People are worried that if they do chest compressions, they're going to dislodge the inflow cannula. That's always the big concern, but I haven't really seen any reports of that occurring in the literature. And there's so much suturing with a ring that attaches that inflow cannula that I think you'd be, you'd have, you'd be hard pressed to be able to dislodge that cannula.
0: That makes sense. And a follow-up question. Let's say I pronounced my patient dead.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What do I do with this
1: LVAD? Then you're going to want to disconnect the LVAD and turn it off. Otherwise it's going to keep on trying to Deliver blood, right? It's it's not yeah. a it's not a smart pump in that it knows that the patient is no longer with you. It sees blood and it sees an opportunity to deliver it elsewhere. Eventually, I would imagine that there'd probably some element of stasis, and then that would probably end up with coagulation and probably the device would end up thrombosing at some point. But you don't want, especially if you have family members there, you know, you yeah. want to be able to disconnect the the cord that would probably be another reason to give me a call so I can talk you through how to disconnect it with minimal alarms. Um, but I guess from a very simple perspective, if you look where the cord is connected to the controller, you would just remove that cord. It's Uh going to cause the device to alarm, but you could take the alarming device to a different room and then call and say, Hey, I took it off the patient. What do I do to turn it off now?
0: Another resuscitation question I had is Mm -hmm. what if the patient needs a left chest tube? am I going to cause harm to this device?
1: Well, I I hope not. (laughs) Um, You should be, patients do have chest tubes all the time, but anytime you do any sort of, um, I guess, incisions or or surgical procedures of any sort, you want to be careful of where the drive lines are placed. so You don't end up interfering with the device, but um, a lot of things can be done reasonably safely for sure.
0: Okay. Would you recommend that we're higher up in the left chest wall or-
1: Um, You probably just want to grab or look at the last chest x-ray so you can see where the device is placed, because that'll help guide you with where it might be the most appropriate position for a chest tube.
2: Along the lines of what we were talking about, uh, something I actually haven't had to do is pronounce a patient with an LVAD, but assuming they come in, they're unresponsive, but the LVAD is functioning, are there a specific set of criteria that I use to then say, cardiovascularly, they're no longer alive because the device can provide their entire cardiac output. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And so if the device is on, but they're unresponsive, as long as the device is on, they have uh, circulation is, am I understanding that right?
1: They, they may have circulation. The extent to which that circulation is supporting them is hard to know because likely their right ventricle isn't functioning at this point. Okay. So you have just left-sided pumping, but that right side is probably not contributing any longer. So if the patient isn't breathing any longer and the only support that you have is the attempts of left-sided support. And again, remember it's support, not, it's not independently, you know, doing mm-hmm. everything for the heart. So you have probably just attempts at support.
2: So I'm looking at my respiratory function rhythms that indicate no, no cardiac output, like mm-hmm. asystole or something mm-hmm. like that. And in that event, I, we would talk about how to disconnect the device. Okay. Yeah.
1: And in some of those cases too, it's helpful to make sure that we know with the family, because it may be that the patient was DNR, DNI, a lot of these things occur less commonly in the ED, but more so in the context of like a hospice type of environment, Hmm. um, where the device is electively withdrawn from care with family members present. So. I've not really actually had any instances during my career where the ED has called me because a patient arrived without actually, you know, being alive, but I suppose it's possible. Anything is possible in the ED, right? <laughs>
2: Anything is possible.
0: Because we're talking about it, it'll it happen this week. Yes. Unfortunately.
1: Oh my gosh. I hope not.
2: <laughs> I've read a, a little bit about a topic, driveline infection. What, mm-hmm. what am I going to look for, for something like that? do I get the antibiotic started? Does it need to be cultured? You know, mm-hmm. What do I need to do in the ED if that's on my
1: differential? Sure. So um, patients, like I mentioned, have this cord that exits their abdomen. So sometimes they may inadvertently drop the controller or the battery bag that's attached to this cord, which could cause a tug at the site, or they may not have done a good job of dressing changes or any one of a number of reasons by which they could develop an infection. Theoretically, the patients should have a bandage over the area where the cord comes out of their belly. But if they're not wearing a bandage, that's another great reason why they might have an infection is they're not uh, probably doing the dressings that they're supposed to. Um, additionally, patients are supposed to utilize a Foley anchor to hold that cord in place. No one wants their Foley catheter accidentally yanked out of them. We don't accidentally want the driveline yanked. And so we put the Foley catheter actually on their abdomen and connect the driveline to it. So if they drop their bag, it tugs at that fully catheter site instead of the insertion site of the alpha, but it only works if patients wear the fully anchor. So I think, you know, <laughs> compliance is, is helpful in these contexts, but if a patient is presenting with a driveline infection, they likely may have green or brown or smelly drainage or like white looking drainage, something that is not your, you're just kind of your sanguineous drainage that you might be used to. And so in those contexts, then you're going to want to swab the site before you start antibiotics, because if you start antibiotics, then remember, you've got to grab the swab after however many hours, you may not know if you're actually treating something or not. So you should always grab the swab first. And especially in these patients, sometimes they may not seem like they're septic. They may seem just a little bit off, or maybe they took Tylenol, say so not really, they're not febrile. It's worth honestly having a low threshold, especially if you're worried about infection for considering something like maybe an abdominal ultrasound to rule out some sort of pocket infection or blood cultures as well to rule out some sort of more systemic infection there as well. And so getting all of those cooking wouldn't be unreasonable depending on the suspicion you have for infection. So those are helpful things. And then you could preemptively start antibiotics if you're you're thinking about, you know, some sort of like skin floor, maybe like Catholics might be reasonable, but if a patient has a history of growing pseudomonas, or you, you know, you can look in the chart and see, gosh, every time they've had an infection, it's been X, that may allow you to more carefully titrate the therapy to what might be a likely cause for the patient. And we're also lucky we have really fantastic infectious diseases colleagues here too. So they may be able to give more guidance if you get some really unusual organism that you've not heard of.
0: Another thing that crosses my mind is can patients with an LVAD have MRIs?
1: So you don't want to do, just like you wouldn't for a patient that has, let's say, um, an IC an ICD, you really don't want to be doing an MRI with, with a magnet. So you can do a CT if you need that kind of an imaging study, but you wouldn't want to do an MRI. Okay.
0: I know with some AICDs, there are unique ways we can get them through an MRI. If oh, we need okay. to evaluate spinal cord, et cetera. Are there any... Ways to get an LVAD patient an MRI safely?
1: Not, not that I know of. <laughs> okay. um, I think the risks would be would be significant. I do know that there was a group in Germany that was working on some sort of a protocol to be able to do that successfully, but I'm not sure where they're at.
0: Do you think there's anything we need to think about before placing a patient with an LVAD in a helicopter for transport? Yes, I mean,
1: always yeah. make sure that you bring their backup equipment with them, so you don't want to throw the patient in the helicopter. And then their batteries alarm in the helicopter flight and say, okay, now you've got 15 minutes left because you didn't bring the backup batteries with the patient in the helicopter and you've got a two hour, you know, I don't know, bit to go. So um, if possible, bring their backup controller, bring their backup equipment. So that way they, you know, have access to that if, if necessary. If it's possible, and I don't know what the weight restrictions are sometimes for helicopters, but the patient's spouse is likely trained on LVAD or their caregiver. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of instances, they may be your best resource for LVAD information in route. So sometimes caregivers have accompanied patients just so that way they can help change the batteries or help address alarms if the, you know, the team isn't comfortable or familiar with that. Now, sometimes that isn't possible, but that could be a consideration as well. So those would probably be be things I would say for sure to try to think about.
0: That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I would want, if I, if I could have people who know more about it with me. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier anticoagulants. Are there any other medications that we should expect our LVAD patients to be taking?
1: Yes. A lot of um, these folks have some element of hypertension. So you're likely going to see something um, to address hypertension. And in some cases, they also have arrhythmias. You might see mitoprolol on board for the patients or lisinopril or ACEs or ARBs or all of those sorts of things. Um, Patients remember have an LVAD, but they don't have an RVAD, And so they still can have right heart failure related things like volume overload. So diuretics are pretty common. And then if they're on a diuretic, probably some sort of electrolyte supplementation. So potassium and magnesium supplementation would be pretty common to see because of the way that the VAD works and the way blood cells are chopped up. Sometimes they're on iron repletion like Vitron C or just a standard iron tablet. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of our patients will take a PPI for GI prophylaxis and to reduce risk of bleeding. And I guess, ulcer development, yeah. um, multivitamins. I don't know, like it, those are kind of big ones. And then if they have arrhythmias, then you might see amyodorone, maxillotine, those kinds of things.
0: That makes sense. Are there any instances where a patient, if they present to a community ED, there shouldn't be a call to a specialty center about this patient?
1: Sure. I guess if it was not an LVAD issue, you know, because again, okay. patients frequently present with non-LVAD things and people think, oh my gosh, they have an LVAD. So we are not capable of treating their, XYZ thing, finger injury, but they very well. Yeah. They very well may be able to do that, but we've had patients that have transferred here for a variety of, of really innocuous things um, just because they had an LVAD, but that really isn't necessary. But Uh, I, at the same point too, I don't want to force people to feel comfortable with something that they're not. So I always am happy to take patients if, if there is, you know, a, a general, you know, discomfort with, with providing that care for the patient, but there's a lot of things that they don't need to come here for. Perfect. Some and- places also honestly are very comfortable with bad patients because they've had a lot of them in their community. So they'll even scope these patients, okay. you know, out in the community or do, you know, admit for a brief course of IV diuretics and that kind of a thing. So, I mean, it entirely depends on who you get and kind of their comfort uh-huh. level with these sorts of things. And so it's, it's highly variable.
0: So the, what I'm hearing is it's, it's case-based. It's not dependent on transplant candidacy or anything like that. I know with the liver transplant center, There are some requirements Mayo has to meet so that we have Mm -hmm. to call liver transplant on all these patients before they're Mm -hmm. admitted and things, but it doesn't sound like that exists for these folks.
1: Um, Not generally. I do know that there are some contracts that Mayo has with certain insurers that I think that they, that they tend to come here for those reasons. Um, So I wouldn't override if their insurance says they must come here over somewhere else. That's totally fine. Um, But I don't think we have that many contracts to that effect.
0: Okay. Let me take a moment to summarize what we've heard so far. The LVAD stands for Left Ventricular Assist Device. This is important because this device is not a total replacement for the patient's own heart function, but rather an assist to just the left side. The right heart is independent and can fail on top of that, and each individual patient's left ventricular function from their intrinsic heart can vary. The LVAD is used for people who are in advanced heart failure. We're talking about New York heart failure classification 4, essentially, or those who have ejection fraction under 25% or severely reduced cardiac index. Sometimes patients with balloon pumps or who are on continuous inotropic medications, that could influence their candidacy for this device as well. The device is used primarily as a destination therapy, as in the final treatment for the patient's cardiac output problems, or it could be used as a bridge to transplant, as in this is just a temporizing measure until a transplant of a new heart becomes available for the patient. There are three current devices that we may see in emergency medicine around the country. A HeartMate 2 device, which is more of a legacy device. People are not currently getting that implanted, but it was approved before for bridge to transplant and destination therapy around 2010. There's also a HeartMate 3, which is the current device that is recommended and currently being implanted around the country. And then there's a Heartware device, which is a slightly different set of parameters and a different interface that is also no longer recommended. Speaking of parameters, there are several parameters that the device will um, display for us that can help us in caring for the patient. In particular, There's power, measured in watts, and this represents the amount of electricity that the device is using from the battery or from the wall. There's flow, which is a calculated variable and can give you erroneous values if the other variables are off. This represents the amount of blood flowing across the device and is somewhat akin to their cardiac output. There's also speed, which is a fixed variable, but as we have already talked about, sometimes the device will revert to a lower speed, and that could be a clue as to what might be going wrong. And then the HeartMate devices will have a pulsatility index, which represents some measure of how much the patient's native heart is contributing to flow. The HeartWare device will have a waveform that it will display, but it will take some training to be able to interpret that. There are some general care issues when we approach patients with lvads in particular it is more common that they will not have a palpable pulse than it is that they will have a palpable pulse and this is because they lose the pulsatility in their flow because the lvad produces continuous flow that can be um, uncomfortable if we're not prepared for that also along the vital signs track The blood pressures can be very difficult to take with an automated cuff. It's best to use a doppler pressure and that means find a location where using a doppler you can hear flow happening through the vessels. It'll be a continuous whooshing sound that might be at the wrist or at the elbow. Place an automated cuff proximal to that as you normally would and inflate the cuff until that whooshing sound goes away. Then inflate further another 20 millimeters of mercury, and then as you slowly deflate it, identify where that flow returns. Ideally, it's the same spot, and ideally, that spot is within 70 to 85 millimeters of mercury for most patients with LVAD. Another area of concern, as Alex and I listened, was the buttons. There are generally going to be two or three buttons on the controller device. Thankfully, these buttons are safe for us to push and may give us parametric information that we can relay to you all as specialty teams to get better uh, feedback and guidance. Now, there may be some alarms that go off, but we will not do anything dangerous to the patient, so it's best to pretend as though this was expected and that we're just testing out the device. Speaking of alarms, the alarms are coded in a traffic light situation. Green, as in things that are diagnostic information that do not require immediate attention. Yellow, which means take a pause. There might be something we could consider doing, but if we're uncomfortable, there is time to delay and consider. And then red, which means stop and take actions very soon rather than later and contact you all, Sarah, to be able to get guidance in that. You also talked to us about when the patient arrives, generally, if there is a consideration of an LVAD-related issue, there are common diagnostic tests that you would recommend. You said the echocardiogram is very helpful. In addition, a chest x-ray, electrocardiogram, complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, lactate dehydrogenase, which can help guide whether or not there's a reason to consider a clot, for example, prothrombin time or INR, magnesium, And then we should consider getting the AICD interrogated, as patients with LVAD can have arrhythmias with very unusual histories of present illness or presentation. In fact, as Alex shared, they can even have life-threatening arrhythmias, like ventricular fibrillation, and be awake and talking. Now, when that happens, we can treat that as we normally would, using cardioversion, using uh, medications, but we should be aware that the patient may be actually uh, uh, quite a bit more conscious than we're used to, and we should, of course, provide um, symptomatic treatments or sedation as appropriate. When thinking about other general care issues, LVADs are not currently approved for use in MRI machines, and when we are thinking about the medications that they're on, be ready for a variety of heart-related medications, not just anticoagulants, but antipertensives, antidysrhythmics, diuretics, electrolyte supplementation, and GI peptic ulcer disease prophylaxis. Among them is not necessarily immunosuppressive medications, so that's not a feature of these devices. Whenever transporting a patient with an LVAT on a helicopter or I assume ground transport as well, it would be ideal to make sure to bring as much backup equipment as you can and potentially any skilled family members or loved ones who know the device really well um, if weight and other circumstances permit that. We should remember that LVAD patients are at high risk for bleeding. This is for many reasons. They're on anticoagulant medications, there can be mechanical trauma to the clotting factors, an acquired von Willebrand syndrome, and the continuous flow, rather than pulsatile flow, predisposes to AVM formation, most commonly in the intestine, such as the small intestine. There can also be clotting, and these patients are at risk for clotting in the device itself, or embolic syndrome, such as stroke. We should remember that When we see that the speed is dropping below that fixed mark frequently, this may be a sign of a suction event where the left ventricular muscle tissue, whether the septum or free wall, is occluding the inflow of the cannula and the speed is being dropped down to be able to release the two. Echocardiography is really helpful in identifying that. If we see that there's changes in the power, such as it's elevated, there's a lot of causes for this, and it would be very helpful to engage you, Sarah, and your team to be able to get advice on that differential. That includes things like hypertension, hypervolemia, um, even thrombosis in the pump or uh, around the pump could do this. And this is, again, where the LDH can be helpful. Values that are 2.5 to 3 times the patient's baseline are concerning for thrombosis or hemolysis. Uh, we talked about arrhythmia already, and then surrounding death, patients with an LVAD, um, they may have somewhat preserved left ventricular outflow even after the right heart is dead, or they have stopped breathing, or their neurologic function has ended. So we need to use those other markers to determine death. Um, And then removing the device would be very helpful if we disconnect the cord from the controller um, and then take the alarming device to another room and then contact your team, Sarah, to get guidance on how to shut that off. It's probably the best um, way to operationalize getting this disconnected when the patient has died. But as you mentioned, this is very uncommon to happen in an emergency department and usually happens in a, a hospice type setting. And lastly, we talked about driveline infections. If there's concern for infection, which might be because of um, typical skin related infection signs, redness, warmth, drainage from around the insertion site of the driveline, um, we should take a culture as soon as possible um, before starting antibiotics. Consider an ultrasound to look for a discrete pocket of pus um, within the skin, and then also blood cultures can be very helpful. Thank you so much, Sarah. You are an incredible educator, and we really appreciate all your time with all this. Now, you've been taking calls from the emergency department and managing these VAD devices for so long. Are there any other things we didn't ask you that you think our audience might want to know?
1: I think you guys honestly covered a lot of the of the critical information. I think that VADs are not as scary as people imagine them to be. It's just something different, but different doesn't have to be scary. I mean, before you know it, you could become an expert in LVAD too, and soon you'll be teaching other people about these alarms or saying, "Look for this, you know, these green arrows chasing each other or changing a battery is not all that hard." And I think that the more that we do anything, the more comfortable it becomes. I imagine the first couple of days that you were in the ED. Treating non-LVED things so was probably a bit petrifying, wondering, like, what if somebody comes through with something I haven't seen? But then once you've seen that something you haven't seen 10 times, it probably is a little bit easier. And I think that is the same sort of thing. So the more that you do it, the easier it becomes.
2: I don't words. think I'll be an expert anytime soon, but I'll follow your advice. I won't immediately start CPR on my awake patient with an LVAD <laughs> when I walk in the door.
1: Thank you.
0: <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation on the Always On EM podcast. We've been fortunate enough to talk with Miss Sarah Shettle. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes, Any thank you both. final
0: words for us?
1: Um, no, I hope I hope you have only positive experiences with LVAD patients. <laughs>
0: The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkonda.